Welcome to The Big Deal, where we'll unlock the details and drama behind the business of sport in Australia and around the world. Join me, Warren Treadray, along with Andrew Montessi, Dion Heyman and our expert guests as we take you into the boardroom for behind-the-scenes access and analysis of contracts, negotiations, endorsements and more. Don't forget to sign up at www.thebigdeal.au for a weekly wrap of the latest deals, breaking news and many more exclusive opportunities. Welcome to another episode of The Big Deal. I'm Andrew Montessi, joined by AFL legend Warren Treadray. G'day, Treaders. Hey, Monty. How are you? Good, mate. Now, we're back with our sports business wrap covering the latest big money moves in Australia and around the world. Let's just get stuck into it with the AFL. And it's the story we've been following for a while, uh, the, the AFL CEO job. The league's finally announced Andrew Dillon as the CEO. Uh, of course, you know, they're just going to drag it out a little bit further. He's not going to take over from Gil McLaughlin, Gil McLaughlin until October 2nd. So what do you think, mate? Um, I think he'll end up being a good appointment, but I think they missed a chance, and that is uh, Brendan Gale from the Tigers. But let's look at history right now. Effectively, they're saying the writing has been on the wall. If you want to become the next AFL CEO, you need to be inside the tent before you get the role. You know, Wayne Jackson was running Lion Nathan um, Brewery uh, in Adelaide, but he was also an AFL commissioner. He ended up getting the CEO role. He then goes and gets Demetrio from the Players Association as his head of footy. He then inherits the AFL role. Demetrio then looks at McLaughlin. Bill McLaughlin then becomes, I think, a COO or an operations guy, the second in charge. He then gets the role. Now, all of a sudden, Andrew Dillon was the head of legal counsel, acting head of football, and has done multiple roles. He's walked into the role. So it says if you ever want to be an AFL CEO, you need to be inside the tent. Um, I think he'll be good. But to spend a million bucks to go all over the world to look straight in the office block not right next door, the next cubicle over, um, and the fact that probably they'd meet 10 times a day as his old legal counsel, Andrew Dillon, and the CEO, Gil McLaughlin, the commission has known about this for quite some time, that he was a candidate, but it just shows to me that this is another polishing exercise by the AFL. Sure, they've made their appointment, got no problem with that. He was one of two I thought should have got it, it as either Gale or Dylan. And I just, for this, the fact of everything's been inside the tent, maybe look outside the tent. They've certainly uh, gone through the process, but they've, they've set it on their man. But they've created, what the AFL does is, is history of covering up a media message and the whack on them the last three months and I think I've said this on the big deal is that it looks like it was unorganized because they've known since March last year um, whether uh, not this no, last year 2022 so they've known that this you know, Gil was leaving um, but why is it now that they've decided that he was going at gather round you know that was a month ago now in Adelaide almost so but now, oh, now we, we haven't got a succession plan. Oh, now we've got a succession plan. He'll start at the end of the year. The reason they're doing this handover now, they should have already done this handover. This should have already been the case. But now they're trying to squash it to say there is a plan in place. Well, I think they've added this plan to say, Gil, stay on to the end of the year. Um, gives you time to go and look at what you want to do in the process. If you find something else, you can move on earlier, I, I assume. Um, but in the meantime, Andrew Dillon gets to be the understudy. But there's nothing he wouldn't be in a cross as the head of legal. That's the bit I just don't get. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's, I completely agree. And as you said, to spend a million bucks in recruitment fees and take almost a year, like, like I'm all, I'm all for going through a process, even yep. if you've got your guy 
in mind, but that's just ridiculous. And it's the time that's the big factor. Like a million bucks is one thing, but time has a huge impact on the future of an organization. And the organization has to tread water until that appointment is made. Uh, And I think that is where the real cost is. Yeah, and also too, like we also don't have a head of football and haven't really had a head of football until Andrew Dillon. Now he's the CEO elect. So he goes leaves his legal role as a CEO elect effectively is involved in all the decision making. So sitting in all the meetings that Gill would do, negotiations with players, deals, the whole lot, um, the racism investigation. But Laura Kane now comes in as an interim head of footy, I assume until the end of the year. And Stephen Mead is now the new legal counsel. So you're also pushing Laura Kane, who is well regarded in Clubland and also the AFL, but now goes into another temporary role to run a season. We're running a professional organisation here. What are we, round seven or eight? We've got to lose count now. It moves so quick. But still, we don't have a head of footy. We've only just decided we've got a new CEO coming in, but he won't come into the end of the year. But the one that we was leaving is now going to stay on to October. It's just messy and ridiculous. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think... Laura Kane will end up getting the gig in the same way that Andrew Dillon has ended up getting the gig? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so because there is a lot of talk around that um, the AFL, whether or not Brendan Gale, they like he, him the man, you can't ignore what he's done um, because, you know, former 250-game player at Richmond, CEO of the Players Association, qualified lawyer, private practice then, then gone to the um, Richmond Footy Club and turned them around financially and also they've won three premierships in a short space of time. So he is also a, a Tassie guy. So that says to me that they're going to pick the phone up and that everyone keeps reporting about this wide-ranging role of a head of footy and a role with the AFL. I'm not sure Gail wants to do that unless he wants to take on Tassie. You know, there will be a, a, a CEO of the Tasmanian license, whoever it is, the Tassie Tigers or Tassie Devils or the, I don't know, the Jack Jumper's cousin, you know what I mean, down there. Like, I don't know what they're going to call him, but he would be a likely person for Tasmania. But also bear in mind, too, he hasn't probably lived in Tasmania since he was in his teens. Um, so I think he would be a huge value to the AFL in that new license space organising and preparing it, um, what sort of draft concessions they get. But why would he want to leave Richmond when Richmond is now going through a whole new system of probably having to redevelop? They've fallen out. Their list, their form has fallen away. Uh, I project them as a finalist, but they're, they're really struggling in the bottom half of the of the um, the competition. But I, I just sit back and go, he'd have to move backwards. You know, the other one being mentioned too is Tom Harley, but he's the CEO of the Sydney Footy Club, based in Sydney, wife's in business in Sydney, settled in Sydney. Would he want to come back and run the head of footy? I think that's a massive step backwards. But as I said earlier, if either of those have got sights on being the next CEO of the AFL, I think it would be a very wise move. Um, And I would suspect that's more Tom Harley's basket than uh, Brendan Gale's basket because different age bracket. And if they've proven that they'll they'll generally uh, appoint from within. Yeah, but gosh, like given the AFL has just appointed a new CEO, if you're going to pick up one of these other roles with a view to one day be CEO, you're playing the long game. Like oh, that could 10 be, years plus, you, isn't it? Yeah, 10 but, years plus. And there's no guarantees really when you, no. when you take on one of these uh, second tier roles. Yeah, and especially with commission changes, a lot of people questioning whether Richard Goida should be there. Um, yeah, is his turn to move on? So it all really depends on who your chairman is and who your board is at the commission and who they believe in too. So, yeah, I would suspect that either Harley or Gail, I wouldn't touch the foot, head of footy role. 
Now, I think it needs to be someone who's experienced in club land and, and, and forget about this temporary stuff. Now, I think Dylan's major task, yeah, clearly there's the racism thing you'd have to deal with, the new players deal, uh, where they seem miles apart, one one of the nine-year deal, one one of the three or four-year deal. I think we reported that last week on the big deal. But I just sit back and go, the priority is they're going to get footy right. Yeah, I think their match review is all over the place at the moment. Um, what constitutes a tackle, the holding the bowl rule. Everything seems to change at an annual ba- uh, annual basis. Uh, and a lot of it's got to do around the legalities of head contact. And I understand that challenge that faces both players and the competition. But they need to get the priorities of getting footy right. Yeah, and the game's going okay. Don't get me wrong. Financially, everything looks like KPIs are great. But the frustration level from the fans is pretty high at this stage. Yeah, and you mentioned the uh, Hawthorne racism investigation, and and that's likely to fall into Andrew Dillon's hands, even though he's not taking over until October. I mean, this thing's not going to get wrapped up anytime soon. I mean, where's it at at the moment, Treaders? Well, my understanding is, well, I heard some info privately that suggests that one of the coaches involved really wants this open transparency because he's very confident he's done nothing wrong. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm not sure about the other. I haven't um, delved into that too deep. But when both coaches are believed to flick for mediation, uh, that's been reported. They don't want mediation. That suggests they've got a problem because my, my info says someone wants an open book to go, hey, let's lay all these facts on the on the table and what I actually did. Um, and let's just say you and I both know the AFL. Are they going to want to have an open book with this one? <laughs> There's no so. way they want to wrap it up into a bow and have a resolution that keeps everyone happy. But I just don't know how you're going to keep everyone happy in this situation because some people feel aggrieved. Other people have been um, brought into this fold and feel like they've been char- well, effectively charged and accused of doing something they didn't do. Um, so this, they are they are piles apart on this one. So it's yeah, it, it is it's a big one, and I think this is something that I think Gillan McLaughlin thought he could get sorted pretty soon but no it's it's a fair way off i've heard yeah and then there's obviously tassie and the federal government's coming in pledging 240 million for a stadium precinct investment uh they're also setting aside 65 mil to uh upgrade launceston too uh so tassie's not official yet uh, but but where's it at treaders well the big piece of the puzzle fell on the weekend when uh, Anthony Albanese donated that huge chunk of cash. So that says to me that it's going to happen by all conversations I've had with people at board levels in terms of club land. They're all on board. They think it's good for the game. Um, I don't know whether they're getting an extra handshake of money to make it work. Um, It does create the AFL with a predicament. Now you've got a a, uh, rolling buy. Um, and I'm not sure how they're going to work through that um, because now uneven teams and bits and pieces, it's it's going to have to, you know, so that, that, that pre-finals buy, I'm not sure if that survives. I'm not sure if the mid-season split rounds survive over those three weeks because you're going to have a rolling buy anyway. So um, I think it will get up. I think the finances will get up. I think the stadium will get up because everyone wants to make it happen. And that is, you know, the Prime Minister of, Australia wants his votes and he wants to donate money down to Tassie to give them their precinct, very much like what happened at Adelaide Oval in South Australia, what happened in Perth and obviously what's been at the MCG and what will happen in Brisbane 
um, and, and even to a lesser extent Sydney um, with the multi-stadiums multi they've got there. So I think the, the biggest challenge for this one is around the size of the stadium and no one seems to be talking about it. It's a 23,000-seat stadium with a roof and that's what a lot of people are talking about. They want a roof. Um, that won't prevent, I understand, test cricket being played there if they choose to do that. But 23,000 is not big enough for an AFL ground. I get it will be for the first few rounds because as we've seen with the Gold Coast and we've seen with GWS, um, even though they're not really AFL uh, stronghold markets, generally more rugby than AFL, and Tassie is an AFL market, I just think you're going to need more than 23,000 seats. I think it needs to be a 40,000-seat stadium. But obviously the numbers aren't going to add up at this stage with that donation or that 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 um, that handout from the the federal government. So, yeah, I think it needs a to taxpayers' be... donation. Mate, yeah, should we say a taxpayers' donation? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So for mine, if it needs to be twenty three thousand um, seats, it needs to be able to be upgraded. That's the bit I'd like to see because if it's just boutique and twenty three, imagine if footy goes skyrockets. And I know they do all the numbers, but I just can't see how 23 is going to be big enough in the long term. If, if they get grassroots right, you know, talk about best case scenario, you've got to be at least 40,000, I would have thought. Oh, yeah. And when you're investing so much cash into such an enormous piece of infrastructure, you have to be thinking so far long term. Um, and, and, yeah, I think you're right. I think that is a big a big question mark. And and you touched on the, the, the buy, the rolling buy, which is a – a bit of a, a pain from a fixture perspective. How what does the AFL's twentieth team look like? I actually hope it's a Northern Territory based team. I don't know how the logistics work on that. I heard Nathan Buckley talk out against that as out for that um, because he is uh, a Territorian. Um, and lived part of his life before, came to South Australia and played for Port Magpies, then got drafted to Brisbane. Um, so I understand that if you talk about love of footy, and we can talk as much as we want about South Australia, Western Australia, Victoria, you go drop a football in the top end. We've done clinics up there. We've played games up there, both in Alice and um, and in Darwin, both for, I suppose, premiership points, but also for... Um, uh, I guess, what do you call it, exhibition games or pre-season games. And the locals, they live and die um, sport. They love it. And I think if you're serious and you could get enough funding and you can get enough support, um, I think it would be wonderful. I think it would be great. You could probably play part of your games in Alice, part of your games in Darwin. But if Tassie's five years away, that's ten years away. But I'd like to think if the game keeps growing and they can keep their broadcast money coming in, being the number one sport in town, that should be a long-term goal. Don't worry about putting an extra licence in um, Western Australia or South Australia. Um, I don't certainly don't think the South Australian market could afford another team here um, just from sheer no. population size. But if you look at um, Northern Territory, I think there's 600,000 people, someone was saying. Um, and if, if South Australia is 1.2 million and you've got two teams, I would have thought, with the mining and the money involved up there and big business, um, exploration-type business, you'd be able to get enough support to get behind it because absolutely any time there's an AFL game played in the top end or in Alice, um, it's chockers. People love their footy. Yeah, I, I think I, I read some comments from Eddie Maguire along the lines of, oh, it's, uh, it's too much, Northern Territory is too much of a mess socially. 
something like that. So well, maybe was, this could help it. Yeah, I, I agree. I kind of raised raised my eyebrows when I read that. I was like, okay, I don't know if that's the that's a reason to put a line through them. Um, like, I think it's I think footy brings an enormous social opportunity and benefit that I think it's it's just a fact that cities and states will really come around their sporting teams and it actually brings people together. So, uh, and he, I think he actually flagged that there's a consortium apparently backing another Perth team, which does not excite me at all. Another team in WA. That's just boring. Yeah. And, and I think what works so well in the South Australian, Western Australian markets is that rivalry. You put another team in, it's not like you hate the opposition. Who are you? You Eagles or you Dockers or you Port or you Crows or, yeah, and then it's if I'm not, oh, who? You go, oh, I follow Carlton. You know, I, you know, I follow Craig Bradley over or Stephen Coonahan over. You know, all those sorts of things. But, oh, who are you? Like, I know it works in Queensland from the rugby rugby league, and that's where pe- people will simply go, well, look at the Dolphins. They're doing so well. But the Dolphins effectively come from a lower league where Wayne Bennett coached years before. Um, I think it was Knightscliffe, wasn't it? Um, there was a link. Forgive my ignorance on this one. I'd seen it before. Um, that there was a, a, a team at a lower league where effectively that's where the licenses come from. So that's why there is an initial supporter base. That's why there is a, uh, a level of success and, and that's why they've been able to hit the ground running. Yeah. And it's funny, you know, we're, we're talking about all the kind of AFL opportunities and the money flying around. Meanwhile, Socceroos coach Graham Arnold, he's just pissed off. He's, he's just spoken to News Corp and he's seeing all this money flying around and yet the Socceroos don't even have a high performance center in Australia. Don't have anything. They, they go and they train out of um, a, basically a suburban rugby league stadium in New South Wales. And you've got guys worth squillions of dollars coming from all over the world, the best facilities in the world coming and scrapping around on a rugby league suburban yeah. ground. Yeah, and I can witness that. I remember when Darren Burgess was uh, with the Socceroos. Uh, I went up to Queensland at the time um, with the young family and spent a few days with the Socceroos watching. They played um, up at Suncorp, but they trained at uh, where the West uh, the the Reds trained in the Rugby Union. Um, yeah, and, and they fly in, they train, they fly out. It's very no different to when um, yeah. No different to an AFL team travels away from home and, and, and trains on a remote or a, or a different ground before they play, but. Um, yeah, I understand his point. There at least needs to be a high-performance centre, particularly when we're, we're about to host the Women's World Cup. So mm-hmm. I would have thought, yes, they've upgraded stadium, they've done all those bits and pieces, and they've been wonderful, and how much money they would have made commercially for the government with what they did in Qatar. Surely they need some. But, yeah, that, that's, a, that's certainly a question. That's certainly a, a hub that they need to sort out. But also, too, the other challenge with that bit is when they come back, where do they play? Well, they'll often play in Melbourne or they might play a game in Adelaide, they might play a game in Perth, they might play a game in Sydney. How do you base yourself at one spot when you also don't know where you're playing your home game, if you know what I mean? So I get there probably needs to be that hub and somewhere where Football Australia can say, hey, this is where our our uh, yeah. our head office is and this is our change rooms and this is our facilities and this is where the Socceroos um, can base themselves before they they play their friendlies whenever they're coming back from overseas. Yeah, it's a center of excellence because you think about it, it's not just the Socceroos, it's, it's you've got the Matildas and you've got all of the kind of emerging talent who are all, you know, in and out of the country at various times. It's not Holy like Roos, the place is, yeah. yeah, it's not like the place is going to be Matildas, empty when the Socceroos yeah. aren't, aren't around. Like I think it's I think it's a, a huge pathway issue 
And and I completely agree. I think it, it's crazy that it hasn't been on the agenda. He makes the point that the uh, New South Wales government, by comparison, has spent about $1.7 billion on various NRL high-performance centres since yep. 2016. So, yeah, and, and also, too, up, upgrading the um, Sydney footy stadium. Yeah. Total rebuild of that out the back of the SCG, you know, because no longer are they really heading out to the old Telstra Stadium or the Olympic Stadium where it was many years ago. So this is a team also, too, ranked 17th in the world. So it's not like we're ranked 350 in a terrible. You know, we've overachieved, if anything, in terms of what we did at, at the um, at the recent uh, World Cup. And our Matildas are in contention for the World Cup. They're top 10 with probably one of the best strikers in the world, Sam Kerr. Yeah. So... Yeah, no, I completely agree. And then uh, some interesting stuff happening in cricket at the moment. We've been kind of watching from afar, seeing some things shifting at home and around the world in terms of money and who gets what and kind of emerging 2020 leagues. And there's plenty happening. Can you give us a bit of a summary, Treaders, what we've what we've been seeing? Well, we know that there was a new TV deal um, done with less Big Bash games because they felt that was saturated. I thought it was a massive step forward last year when the likes of Chris Lynn are able to play a portion of the season, Rashid Khan, before they head over to Pakistan or the IPL or whatever different leagues they go to. Because otherwise, if you couldn't have contributors in that space, then you were going to not have the best players around. And it just so worked from, from an Adelaide Strikers point of view that Lynn goes, and then all of a sudden we were also allowed to get our test stars back. So Kerry and Head, while they didn't have the greatest of form coming off the five-day uh, format, um, were able to keep the stars rolling through the system. And that's why the Big Bash, I think, returned to its best level since almost a couple of years pre-COVID because there wasn't that saturation of extra games. So now what we're hearing is the Big Bash teams are now able to have a marquee supplementary list as part of these new, new rules, allowing them to sign two Cricket Australia contracted players. Um, a new $3 million salary cap, that's up from $1.9 million, so a lot more money to spend. Also has 500000 pooled discretionary funds, which for next season must be used in a split a total of $1.7 between the best six players in each squad. So that's able to beef up who you're getting. You know what I mean? Because I remember the first few years, you had all the biggest names. and But now, sadly, and I think it's a wonderful event, Big Bash, but we can't command the rules and the money that the Pakistan League, the 100 in England, the 2020 in England, and particularly the IPL can command. So I think that's a massive upside to where we're going because, yeah, the league's, you know, they just pull in more money. Simple as that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the Big Bash has to be able to compete with these other international leagues. Uh, otherwise, the it's just going to continue to get depleted. So you can understand why well, they've really had to throw some cash at it. Uh, meanwhile, India is chasing more cash from the uh, from the international cricketing body, despite being the richest cricket nation. Um, can you tell us what's going on there, Treaders? Well, effectively, they get 22% revenue right now. They want 37%. That's a nice bump of 15%. You know, rising from $550 million received in the last eight-year period. So they want $1.3 billion. So if it's a business sense and if it's an employee, if it's a sales rep, and they're making, as they're saying, nine out of every $10 generated in the game, You'd want to get get that, wouldn't you? Yeah. But the problem with that is the more you beef up the International Cricket Council or um, 
beefs up uh, the money towards India, that's less that they can distribute to Zimbabwe playing test cricket, um, West Indies who have fallen behind soccer in a big way playing test cricket. So it is that almost AFL equalisation fund that needs to sort of happen. You can understand it. You can you can pretty much guarantee that they'll get a bump, but I'm not sure they'll get the 37% because that come at huge costs for other test-playing nations and all of a sudden you'll have what is already a pretty one-sided affair. Now, the big three between England, Australia and India, the rest are just doing their best to keep up. You know, we saw... You know, South Africa come to Australia, and they were the second test-ranked nation and got belted off the park. Well, yeah, maybe they didn't deal with the conditions that well or play that well, but it's not long before all we now see is that the Test World Championship or Test Championship, as they call it, to be played at Lord's soon. It'll be between the two powerhouses, Australia and India. So, yeah, and this is the problem too, is the IPL um, almost three times its IPL broadcast deal. Selling rights for twenty three to twenty seven for close to nine billion. So when you're close to what around three billion and go to nine billion, you just can't keep up. So that's that's the massive challenge. Um, And there's even um, some sports economists are out there uh, in the London Telegraph are coming out and saying that the IPL uh, is underplaying its stars. Yeah, that's even when West Australian and Aussie Test player Cam Green gets about three million bucks. So tell him he's getting underpaid. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy because we, work. I know we talk about the like the the perceptions of of the IPL, but this so this research um, done through the London Telegraph with Tim Wigmore and um, Stefan Szymanski, <laughs> I think Zizmanski. I think the pronunciation yeah. is yeah. Just to give yeah. these guys credit because the um, the the research is really interesting, and they're they're basically saying they're getting underpaid compared to the, the the distribution that other sports give. So most major sports distribute around half or more of their revenue to the players. Like the EPL is actually way up there. 71% of rev goes through to the players. NFL is about 48%. The IPL is currently only 18% of revenue goes to the players. So even though the cash looks massive, as a percentage, it's actually not that much. Yeah, and also to what goes to the players and then what is the distribution actually to the teams? That's the other bit because a lot of, you know, and we're talking all of those, EPL, NFL, we haven't mentioned NBA, but NBA is involved in that. They're all private ownership, so too like the IPL. So maybe the owners of the IPL are getting more of the uh, more of the bag of cash as opposed to the players who are pretty well done, but we know those licenses aren't cheap. They're through the roof. So maybe that, that actually needs to level out. It necessarily can go to the clubs, but how much is actually getting to the players? That's right. Now, Treaders, we talked about Live Golf in Adelaide uh, in a fair bit of detail last week. We've got some official stats that you can run through. Yeah, we talked about the success, as you say, about Live Golf. Uh, official attendance, 77,076 people. That's over three days. Um, look for that to be even bigger next year. And I reckon they'll try and fit more people on course. Um, just And maybe, you know, it's spread out over two courses, the Grange East and West. They pick uh, the best of nine holes of each. But if they could spread that out a bit more, I think there was, I was there, as I said, on two of the three days. And there's clearly room for more people to get get involved or get on course. It certainly wasn't, you know, obviously it was tied around the greens when you're following the big names, but that's always the case. But there was a good spread of people, a good space amount of people. Uh, in that times, 116,978 beers were sold. A lot of How those. How many of those did you have? Uh, I had three. 
through through Leishman Lager. So we'll give uh, Leishman Lager, which is uh, Mark Leishman and Cam uh, Cam Smith's uh, own drop, I think it is. So uh, fifty five million social media and video views. Well. I reckon that could be tripled if they fixed the internet because everyone was trying to post on the Friday when we are in the Shark Shack, which was the watering hole, and no one could even send a text message to their mates. So portable, um, one improvement, portable internet that will help that go through the roof. But that, that's that's huge for South Australia, and that's exactly why the South Australian government did it because it's, it's showing off the state of South Australia, it's showing off their event, it's showing off live. And even 23,390 pieces of Live Golf merch was sold. I know we didn't walk away empty-handed. Uh, my son got a hat. My wife was lining up to get some other clothes before I prevented her. I think the hats were about 60 bucks a pop. So um, maybe it was even 40 bucks a pop. Not sure. But, yeah, their, their stuff is different. Their branding is different. Their yeah. clothing is different. Um, everything about it is different. And that's why it was a wonderful success. Well, when, uh, when you're sinking 117,000 frothies, you'd expect that there'd be a few drunken purchases of, uh, you know, I'll go buy 10 hats, you know, whatever it is. So it's a, it's a decent business model to have a few silly things to purchase while you're there. That's for sure. Yeah, and also too, I think it was about 14 million, it's believed to have cost the South Australian government. I think it's a three-year deal or maybe have three years to go by memory. So um, there's no doubt that, yeah, if the weather is as good as it was when it came um, a week and a half or two weeks ago now, then, uh, yeah, that'll be brilliant. Now, a quick one. Uh, starting to get a little bit excited about the FIBA World Cup and, uh, and the Boomers. Um, what's, the, what's the latest there, Treaders? Well, they're saying um, Boomers will go in as favourites in their Group E. And this is alongside Germany, Finland and host nation Japan when the tournament tips off, tips off in late August. Well, the good thing about this is instead of the promises, right, of former NBA stars coming back at times, and oh, I understand some don't have insurance. You know, Basketball Australia was at a stage many years ago where they probably weren't in a position to insure the deals. So when a Ben Simmons or an Andrew Bogut's worth a $100 million sponsorship, it's a bit hard considering the NBA players paid their wage, uh, the clubs paid their wages, whether they can insure them so they could play for Australia. But the boomers are going to have a really strong squad. Paddy Mills always rocks up. Josh Giddy's keen to play. He has put that out there for everyone. Jock Landall, who's with the Suns. Josh Green, a young rookie. Joe Ingles coming back off that knee. They all look set to play. The last time the players did play a similar game uh, was when some pre-Olympics exhibitions in Melbourne. They were sold out. I think it was at uh, Marvel Stadium. So they played the Team USA back then. So that's a great thing. And that's a great thing for growing basketball because, as we've said with the Socceroos before, unless you can actually get the big names back in Australia to play, then it's great. It's, basketball's going through a massive boom. Yeah. Um, and we're in a situation, too, where I reckon the boom is almost back to when I was a teenager, when it was the Jordan era. You know, it was Pippen, it was Charles Barkley, Shaq was coming into the league. We're now seeing that off the back of the end of LeBron, Steph Curry, all these situations too. And I think it's really reverberated back to the NBL level and the grassroots level because basketball at grassroots level is strong. It's just now we're seeing the NBL um, getting stronger and stronger by the day. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of credit to, you know, those Aussie NBA veterans who have, like they've seen the bigger picture about the legacy that they can leave on this sport and they've all committed so they've committed to the country. They've committed to play. You know, if, if they were being selfish, they, you know, they could say no if they wanted to, but they've actually committed to building the game. So 
I think it's really exciting and the whole country is getting behind them. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, and also too, you mentioned the veterans, but even the youngsters, Josh Giddy had a different start to his NBA career. He wasn't like a Bogut or some of the guys who are actually in the college system. You know, he played with Adelaide 36ers. We'll speak to Grant Keeley, the owner um, of the Adelaide 36ers, because you know he, he's a businessman who's got involved um, about um, putting resources into the business of basketball. You know, and, and and we'll chat to him in the next couple of weeks on the big deal. But you know, we talked online, talked to him about the acquisition of Josh Goody because they got him in as a rookie. The first half of the year was sort of playing a bit of bench role. Then he turned into a mainstay. Then all of a sudden he's drafted to the NBA because everyone knew he was going there. He was good enough. And now he's taken the competition by storm. Mm. But there's no doubt he remembers where he's come from. And that's why I love the fact that he wants to get back and play for Australia because, you know, he's not one of these kids that was gone up, forced to go away at 14, 15, 16 years of age and, you know, hasn't been around for five to 10 years. Yeah, this guy wasn't so long ago playing in the NBL for Adelaide 36ers. Yeah, that's right. Now, we haven't seen the same impact in the NFL. We've obviously had Aussies kind of come through from time to time. We've just had the NFL draft. We saw that uh, a lad, Lou Headley, didn't get the call up. Um, but was claimed as an undrafted free agent by the New Orleans Saints. He's an interesting one. He now gets a chance to make their 53-man roster, uh, bringing a minimum payday of 750000 USD. So that's wow. well over a million bucks. Uh, it's worth a crack. Uh, he's a he's a school dropout, tradie, father of one, played in the Waffle Resies. I love these stories. These guys that just have <laughs> a crack. 750000 US. Well, yeah, he's a chance of hitting that. Uh, yeah, should he make the make the roster? So, um, but interesting the you know the guys that follow the NFL closely. I think we're a bit surprised that another guy, Adam Corsack, didn't get drafted. Treaders. Yeah, well, I've just got my currency converter out just so I'm hoping that this poor bike gets up. So, what did you say? A seven hundred seven hundred fifty thousand USD. Yeah, he's going to be struggling. That's only. 1.1 million Aussie. Yeah. yeah. So but doing, uh, right? Adam Corsack was an interesting one because he was he was the best punter in college football by a long way, like all the numbers. Um, but, yeah, missed out. But he's going to go into the, the rookie mini camps for the Kansas City Chiefs and the Pittsburgh Steelers. So the dream's far from over. So yeah. good luck to him. And also, too, the punters are treated a bit differently. By memory, I'm not sure they roll three punters on their list, are they? No. They'll, they'll generally have one and maybe an understudy or they'll, they'll just bring someone in to replace the bloke who's shanking it. So yeah. it's almost like a, a kickoff situation. I've heard that. I remember Sav Rocket and Ben Graham talking about that at some stage that whilst they played um, and they hit the big time in the NFL as the punters, every year they almost had a kickoff against a guy who wanted to take their job. So yeah. it is a very different dynamic than if you're a quarterback, and we all know that they run with one, two, and three, and four quarterbacks sometimes as backups. Um, yeah. But you're, you're, while we speak about the NFL, that their draft's delivered again, hasn't it? Big time. Yeah, we were talking about it uh, in, the, in our previous episode, just the dollars and the advertising behind the, the show of the NFL draft. Now, we talked about some estimates, but the numbers are in the three-day event averaged 6 million viewers across ESPN, ABC, and the NFL Network, which was a bump of 12%. Uh, the average last year was 5.3 million. And then, there's the, um, and then there's the attendance as well. 
Attendance for a draft. I still can't get over this. Yeah. 312,000 fans attended the event in Kansas City. No wonder a Kansas City bid to have the draft there. Because oh, they, yeah. imagine how many burgers and beers that is over a three-day period while you're hoping your team lands the next Tom Brady or you know, uh, Joe Montana or whoever it is. You know, and the, this is the bit, but it's not like it's done on the cheap. The set where they produce this from um, was $3 million US in construction costs. And we talk about the economic impact of beers and burgers and ribs and whatever it is, $100 million to Kansas City. That's amazing. It's, it's massive. So you can see, you know, we've talked about how all the other sports would love to emulate the, the draft product. You know, none of them are going to get to that level. But gosh, if you can get a piece of the pie, I mean, why wouldn't you have a crack in, in, in turning it into a product? Because that's, that's pretty incredible. Well, you're good, aren't you? You mentioned piece of the pie, and now you know what the next piece of our stories is going. Is Kevin Durant has signed with Nike for life. You now he's followed Michael Jordan clearly, and get out there and watch that uh, video. I didn't mind that. I went to the movies the other night and watched Air, the story of Michael Jordan and signing with the Nike Nike brand. Yeah. Um, also, LeBron's done it. Obviously, we mentioned um, Jordan, but now Kevin Durant joins them. He, he originally signed straight out of the draft in uh, 2007. I reckon he was the Seattle Supersonic when he got drafted. So, and he's, you know, you can accuse sports people of making dumb business ventures, but not this guy. Um, his business partner, Rich Kleiman, a longtime manager as well, an advisor, they've invested. Um, they have an investment firm. There's 35 ventures. Coinbase is one of them when they got in early. 60 times, 61 times up on their on their investment. Um, Postmates, Seat Geek, Whoop, uh, Therabody. He's pretty much a squillionaire. And now he, he gets Nikes for the rest of his life. Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah, he's very savvy. I actually, um, I listened to an interview with his business partner, Rich Kleiman. They've been doing stuff together for years. Um, you know, they've got that VC firm, 35 Ventures, as you mentioned. They do a lot of other stuff as well. But he was actually talking about how when he signed with Golden State, I think it was back in 2016, a big part of why he wanted to go there was the his business interests. They wanted to go to, they wanted to be close to Silicon Valley to get more deal flow for their investments. So, Because well, he took less the, money, didn't he? He took yeah. could have got more money to go elsewhere. And we know Golden State plays the highest. Uh, salary luxury tax, obviously their salary cap, they uh, they spend over and pay the tax on that when they did it at the time and still do it now. But um, yeah, not only did he win championships and dominate and probably push his on-field aura even higher, and some say arguably the best player in the game at the time, but he's obviously lined his pocket on the way out too. And he broke the story on his own boardroom website, which is um, his sports business uh, internet company. Yeah, that's the key. I mean, the... I love looking at what the, these savvy athletes are doing. They build up a whole empire around themselves that includes media, entertainment, investment, all of that stuff. And, um, and then they become these, these magnates and they can uh, transition pretty easily out of sport. But I, I, I love Durant as a bit of a, a case study, you know, that being able to strategic, strategically position, position yourself. It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, for deal flow, like that's actually really interesting because you can't just go and get in early on Coinbase. Yeah. Like you need to have the contacts. You need to be around the place. You get yeah. in early enough. As you said, he ends up with like a 61 times return on his investment. Like that's a, that's a fair win. Yeah. And that's, it's almost heads up club, isn't it? 
yeah. really that stuff it's Absolutely. like oh yeah, we need to raise r- my money we've got this it's even the stories of uber when it starts out oh yeah we want to do this thing oh really what take on taxis oh what on oh, you delivering burgers to people's houses <laughs> you know what i mean like yeah and for that you you need to have the inside running and um there's no doubt that this guy snoop dogg now we know he's a massive lakers fan but uh, Ottawa Senators, he looks like he's uh, sniffing around a chance to take over an NHL team ownership, which is interesting for a bloke who's uh, based in uh, South Central in LA. <laughs> Snoop Dogg sniffing around. That's a good yeah. little, uh, nice little And I'm not there. sure he's in South Central anymore, yeah, for the record. Yeah. yeah, But it's part of his brand. It is a bit of a strange one. Yeah, wants, the, wants uh, a piece of the uh, Ottawa Senators. Um, he's part of a group. They want to become the first black controlling ownership in NHL history. Um, but that magnate, Ryan Reynolds, is also in the mix. He's got a Jeez, bit Rex of... has put him on the mark, hasn't it? The... <laughs> he has. He's like, I bought one and that's worked out pretty well. Let's just keep buying up these sports teams and I'll, I'll throw my brand behind it and we'll, we'll really crank this, these things. That's great. Well, it's funny, the, the family that's uh, owned the Senators since 2003, they paid $92 million back then, and they're talking that it's going to be about a billion dollars to buy them. So that's a nice little return on investment. That's a beautiful little return. Uh, and then, you know, we're also, we've been talking a little bit and following the Man United ownership saga. Uh, apparently, British billionaire Jim Ratcliffe has reportedly offered more than six point two bill to buy Man U. Uh, what's going on there? Well, there's some the Glaziers who um, own the comp- uh, the club or the company, should I say, that owns the club. Uh, they want a uh, seven billion dollars, but Jim is apparently prepared to allow the Glaziers to retain a minority interest. So it could be that he actually buys. There's been figures in the UK press that it was around 65 percent of the of the club. Um, so they can get to stay in and be part owners, but that's almost in, that. Well, let's be honest, that's infuriated. You know, fans who want him out, um, want the yeah. Glaziers out. So over the weekend, you know, fans are protesting, calling for a complete removal of the Glazier family from ownership. And you know, I think since that happens, like, let's face it, if they put it up for sale and just talk about it, are they doing it to kick tires? No, I think they they realise probably their time's done, and now they're saying they will have part ownership that's to probably drive the price up even more. So I think they'll get close to their $7 billion if they don't. If they don't actually get it, it'll get pretty close. And 6.2 seems pretty close, but then you realise it's uh, $800 million short. So uh, there's, a fair, there's probably a little bit more to go. And uh, what it is doing and what's annoying the fans the most with this is when you're in a situation where the manager needs to refresh and if they want to be top of Europe and you want to play in the Champions League and you want to do all these things, and they've really improved this year, um, United, is they need to be able to attract players and plan for next year. So as much as they'd love for the ownership to go through instantly and very quickly, I don't think it's going to happen very quickly because you've also got a football department or or a soccer team and a manager who are sitting there going, okay, who owns us and how much money we got? Because you know, there'd be nothing worse than if yeah, Ratcliffe has got deep pockets. Um, the Ineos group is very uh, connected to the Mercedes and the F1s, part owner, their major sponsor. So they're hoping that United, United are hoping that they're going to have 100, 200 million pounds to spend to bring some of the best players in the world to refresh their, their playing stocks. Very interesting times indeed. I remember, you know, it, was, it doesn't seem like that long ago when people used to say, ah, oh, you can't make any money. Owning a 
sports team and oh, it's just a bit of a hobby for billionaires and whatever. But I don't think that's the case anymore. You're seeing some guys making a solid quid out of uh, sports club ownership. So Treaders, maybe one day you'll get there, mate. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the plan, isn't it? Well, that's the thing. Before you you realised you're selling off branded merchandise, you're selling off sponsored-based merchandise, you swap from Nike to Adidas, then everyone changes over, buys the new stuff, your player transfers, you own your own stadiums, you do your own catering deals. And the biggest one with a lot of the sports in America particularly, and the UK, the, um, situ- the situation is... Um, you know, money talks and TV rights talk, and that's where it's at. Absolutely. Well, that concludes our weekly wrap. Thanks for tuning in. Remember, you can get a summary of these stories delivered to you every week when you sign up for our newsletter at www.thebigdeal.au. So make sure you get on board and subscribe. Before you go, don't forget to join our community by subscribing for free at www.thebigdeal.au and get a weekly email bringing together the hottest sports deals, breaking sports biz news as it happens, and much more. Join me at www.thebigdeal.au.